Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 43. And the podcast this week is sponsored by Scientist.com. Are you ready to revolutionize your research? With over 4,000 global CROs and academic core facilities offering thousands of custom services and over 15 million off-the-shelf reagents and lab supplies, Scientist.com is your one-stop shop for external research. Visit info.scientist.com advantages to download your free copy of Scientist.com's guide to streamlining your sourcing processes and optimizing overall organizational efficiency. That's info.scientist.com advantages. I'm Jim Cornell from The Biotech, and it is the last podcast in April. Next week, there's a holiday on Monday in many places, including the UK, and then there's another holiday the week after because of the coronation. So those will certainly be two busy weeks, cramming the work into four days. Of course, because it's a long weekend, the forecast is for rain. I checked how far I'd have to go to avoid the rain, and it seems that if I drive three hours southeast, I can avoid rain for two hours around midnight on Sunday so maybe not such a good plan. On the other hand, there are record high temperatures in Spain, where I'm sure that they would love a couple of days of rain. Hopefully, wherever you are, it's not at either extreme. We have an interesting interview for you today, and it's one of those that ends up taking a different course to the one that you first thought of, but sometimes those are the best ones. I spoke with Mark Cotter, CEO of UK-headquartered biotech company Bit.Bio, which we will get to after the news. Saying things like, we'll be right back after the news, always reminds me of my old radio days when you had a producer talking in your ear, counting you down to when you had to go to the news. I don't think it's quite as important as it used to be, because nowadays, if you listen to the radio, quite often you'll hear the news at two minutes past the hour or one minute to the hour. So I think that that punctuality is a thing of the past. And so now it's time for the news you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. There was a lot of news this week, a lot of it coming out of events. Even if you weren't aware of an event, you could certainly figure it out when you start getting a stream of press releases all related to announcements at a particular conference. It was also busy because we had our special monthly newsletter this week. Life Biosciences Gene Therapy Data Shows Visual Function Was Restored in Primates. We looked at five biotech companies in Bangalore, India, and RNA-based nanodrugs cause cancer cells to collapse. Researchers saw an 80% survival rate for ovarian cancer in lab models. LifeArc is launching a £40 million funding call to create translational rare disease centres. We had an article on what biotech companies are doing in the fight against malaria, and researchers in Austria have developed more efficient and cost-effective mRNA vaccines. Because it was immunization week, we had a special newsletter on vaccines, and that included articles such as 20 Med Therapeutics and Touchlight, collaborating on a novel vaccine delivery platform, how to address declining vaccination rates in older adults, 
Can mRNA Vaccines Tackle Multiple Diseases? And Global Partners Announcing the Big Catch-Up Vaccination Effort. And the Big Catch-Up was indeed the tagline for the 2023 World Immunization Week. We also had an interesting article on the vaccine for bees. Researchers in Germany said they are making progress in the battle against stomach cancer. Combining gene therapy and chemotherapy could be a new osteosarcoma treatment option. And a link RNA discovery could lead to targeted treatments. Biogen's ALS drug received FDA approval. Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals said patients with asthma and other inflammatory lung diseases can be treated in a fundamentally new way. And Vedanta Biosciences raised $106.5 million for microbiome therapy. Australian biopharma Telex is acquiring AI company Dedicade. Vitali Bio has been formed to focus on immunological disorders. And you can read all of these and more at labiotech.eu. So now let's get to this week's guest, and it's a little longer interview than the ones we usually have, so it's just the one this time. I had planned on this being something for a themed podcast in a few weeks' time, alongside some other interviews. But as I didn't plan the interview in advance, it was nice to just let the conversation flow and see where it ended up. And it does cover a lot of ground, including inequality, scale and cost issues, and artificial intelligence. I think I could use a little artificial intelligence boost myself, but it is interesting that perhaps a year ago I'd get maybe one press release on artificial intelligence a week, and now it's several every day. What I find interesting is that in life sciences, AI is seen as a tool to benefit the industry and to speed up drug discovery, and indeed it is. But in other areas of society, there are real fears that AI is going to take away jobs and even take over humanity. Of course, some of that is pure science fiction, and some of it is driven by, dare I say it, the media even though I'm a part of the media, but I do think that in science or in life sciences that we need to do a bit better job of communicating the positives of AI and that we also need to be mindful of some of the potential negatives and definitely be a part of that debate. I think the worst thing would be to just press on and ignore it because it's quite possible that decisions that affect AI use in the life sciences field might be made by governments and might not involve the science community. I didn't intend to go into all of that, but it's definitely an interesting topic for discussion, and we did touch on some of that with Mark Cotter, who is the CEO of Bit.Bio, which is a synthetic biology company in Cambridge in the UK, and the company provides human cells for research, drug discovery, and cell therapy. But I will let Mark explain a little more about the company himself. First of all, thanks, Jim, for having me on that podcast. My name is Mark Cotta. I'm the founder of BitBio. We're a synthetic biology company focused on generating human cells with a new paradigm. And this new paradigm allows us to address some of the key bottlenecks that this field has been facing, including the consistency and reproducibility of cell products, but also the scalability of cells. And why would you want to do this? Because, you know, human cells uh, can play a huge role First, of course, in the context of cell therapies, which is a new paradigm in which you use cells themselves as a therapy 
And the unique thing about uh, cells is that they're obviously, if you compare them to small molecules in biologics, intelligent. So they can interact with the environment, but they can also replace lost cells. That's, of course, the paradigm of regenerative medicine. And uh, on the other hand, human cells play an important role in translation. As you know, there's been a huge problem in developing drugs, which leads to very high attrition and failure rates. And one of the key elements here is that we've been using models that don't translate very well into the clinic. I always take this Alzheimer uh, example, which is, you know, we tried to create Alzheimer drugs. We've not been very successful at this. The starting point, because you can't access so far human brain cells that have Alzheimer's, the starting point is nice. But there's not a single mouse on this planet that suffers from Alzheimer. So you essentially have to modify it genetically so that they suffer from something that looks like Alzheimer. And when you then develop a drug that is able to treat this, and you take it from the preclinical stage to the clinical stage, in most cases you learn that what you've generated in the mouse is something different than what humans face when they suffer from Alzheimer's. So really the only way to fix this is to use human cells that represent the pathology. And here's what the bio can produce is extremely consistent, scalable brain cells, any other cell type is affected by this condition as a basis of your drug discovery process. So you supply to companies that are doing the trials? Yes. So we have uh, obviously two business models. On the tools side, we want to be a partner and supplier of human cells. Really, the idea is to democratize access to human cells has been a bottleneck. Primary cells are very difficult to obtain. They're variable. Stem cell biology is super difficult. We want to just make it very easy and give you the cells in tubes so that you could just use them off the shelf. Is cost an issue? Cost has been a huge issue in this field, but also especially the scale-up and the manufacturability when you use traditional approaches to generating those cells. The traditional approach is called stem cell differentiation, and it tries to recapitulate what happens during embryonic development. And the problem, of course, is twofold. First of all, it takes time. It takes about nine months until we're born, so this is a long process. And uh, secondly, if you look at how the embryo develops, you know, there's, it sort of starts with a bunch of cells and then sort of create a shape and then initially looks like a tadpole and then sort of changes until you get a, hum- a mini human that then sort of grows. So these stages are associated with various stages of precursor cells, and it takes some time to get to the actual definitive cell type. And on the trajectory from pluripotent stem cell to these definitive uh, somatic cells. The cells have to make what's called cell fate choices. So they have to decide how to produce that or that cell. And these cell fate choices are determined by stochastic principles. And so that the mix of cells is correct in the embryo, but uh, on an individual level, you don't know really how a cell will decide. So if you think uh, about it from a manufacturing paradigm, a long time periods with lots of stochastic events obviously will lead to issues with reproducibility. And that's what we've faced. Let's be honest, you know, stem cell biology has been around for 30 years now, and there's nothing in the clinic. And there's very little you can actually use in, for example, a high throughput screening paradigm. And this is exactly what synthetic biology can solve. 
you can make the process deterministic, uh, you get pure cultures 10 times faster. And so that really allows us to create new cost points. But really, the main point is quality. The cells are extremely consistent and good, functionally good and scalable. So you can you can scale this technology in ways that weren't possible before. It seems like it's a very quickly evolving field. What are some of the things that are helping with that? I guess things like artificial intelligence, is that something that's useful in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I think we fully embrace artificial intelligence or machine learning, as we tend to refer to it, really in, in multiple areas. So if you think about it, the process of inducing new cell identity that we are using is called transcription factor reprogramming. Transcription factors are a category of genes, but about 2,000 uh, transcription factors in human cells that um, regulate other genes. That's their role. They're, they're regulatory proteins. They dictate the expression of other genes. And it turns out that combinations of transcription factors also involved in specifying cell identity. So between one and six transcription factors determine the identity of the cell if you activate them. And you can use this to sort of convert cells from one identity to another. So scientists have been using this to some really crazy transition from liver cells to brain cells, from fibroblasts to neurons. And you can also apply this change of identity to pluripotent stem cells. And if you do that, then you have a very scalable source at the beginning pluripotent stem cells, you know, grow extremely well. You can bulk this up. And when you then activate the correct set of transcription factors, you can directly transition the stem cells into the cell type that you want. So this is 10 times faster than a traditional directed differentiation. And using our OptioX technology, it's deterministic, i.e. every cell in the culture is reprogrammed. And so... So the first element where we use those new ML techniques is to identify the correct set of transcription factors that, that determines particular cell identity. So if you think about every human cell has its own unique transcription factor code, you could say. So the dimensional uh, space that uh, is possible is extremely high. So 2,000 transcription factors over six, that's a huge number. So how do you break that down to get to the cell type uh, that you want? And then if you apply, for example, single sequencing approaches, you get incredible amounts of data. And that means you need ways of understanding this data. And that's, of course, you know, a perfect use case for ML. So we've built, you know, a high throughput screening platform that interrogates transcription factors. And then there is a machine learning and data infrastructure that helps us to interpret this. And so we're trying to close the loop, or we've closed the loop between you know, large-scale experimentation and machine learning. And that means we're getting faster and faster and faster through these new cell identities. Then, of course, there's other use cases. Manufacturing is another huge, important use case. You want to make sure that when you manufacture, you detect any sort of deviations at the earliest possible time. So in process, let's say assays would be the perfect setup so that as you bug up, you have a very good idea about where the process is and the quality of what you're producing. And that allows you to sort of steer early. So when you look at batch-to-batch variability, for example, in one of our products, we have glutamatergic neurons, and we assess differential gene expression using bulk C 
there were none differentially expressed. I've never seen this before, but this is data that you know I now truly believe after having dug in very deep. This sort of paradigm allows you to create consistencies that you actually didn't think were possible. With machine learning, and I guess it's something that has been picked up by the mass media, I guess a good example would be recently the article in the Actuella in Germany that looked like a real interview with Michael Schumacher that was in fact done through AI. Does science kind of have to explain itself to the general public or does it just keep on going doing what it's doing because within science there's a as an understanding that it's all good what we're doing i mean i think you're calling out a very important point in scientists never work in, in isolation you know we are in a cultural context in a country in a society and so it's on us to communicate what we're doing and uh, it's on us to also, you know, inspire and help regulators to set boundaries. And of course, if things are very new, often there isn't any regulation yet. But uh, what you've seen is, you know, people standing up and asking, actually demanding for a pause so that regulators can catch up. So I think we need to do this for all areas of, you know, innovation and science. Uh, and with bio, certainly from day one, we've been very mindful of what the implications might be of what we're producing. So we, uh, we at the very early stage already put together an ethics uh, and, and future board, which is headed by Professor Cordonio Sega. She's an international lawyer at the University of Cambridge. And her task is really to sort of make sure that she can set boundaries and give guidance as to, you know, what is good, what are good directions versus, you know, where we don't want to cross. I'll give you an example. We've decided to not cross the germline boundary. Nothing that we do will ever be, you know, even if we do a cell therapy, um, nothing will ever be passed on to the next generation. So that's a very hard boundary that we've drawn. And I guess a part of that is not just coming up with the ethics, but also being able to communicate that so that people aren't uh, sort of keep gathering up pitchforks and attacking science centers <clears throat> or that kind of thing in the future. Absolutely. I think we are in a particular difficult situation at the moment where the scientific method and tools are getting more and more sophisticated and actually will provide incredible uh, help and progress to humanity, whether it's AI, as you mentioned, or you know, maybe cultured meat or, you know, the advances in medicine. And what we've not been very good at was taking the public along, you know, who are ultimately are going to benefit from these developments. But if we don't take them along, we don't have an audience and the whole thing uh, might be in vain. So, I mean, it's not only ethically right to engage in uh, a conversation and a discussion and education. It makes perfect sense, you know, from a business point of view. How, how do you see the field that you're working in evolving in the short term and in the long term? I mean, I'm super excited about what we've just seen uh, internally. You know, the, you know, the, the level of consistency and quality for ourselves means that maybe for the first time, there is a chance to set research standards in biology and cell biology. 
And that's really important. If you think about it, one of the things that plagues scientific research, especially life sciences, is what's been termed the reproducibility crisis. 50, 60% of papers can't be reproduced. You know, what is the value of a study if you can't reproduce it, especially if you can't interpret it? You look at other fields, mechanics, physics, they have standards. So, and you can have a debate about whether, you know, this should be millimeters or inches. It really doesn't matter. The key is that the standard is the same across every lab, every country. And that allows you to detect deviations and create the connection. Now, in cell biology, we don't have those standards. But imagine you had a standard. You had a, a baseline neuron. might not be the perfect neuron that compares 100% with the neurons that you're particularly interested in. But you could add these to your experiments as a control. And then another lab in another place could do the same. And then you can find that your cells behave very different than the control. And then the finding in the other lab behaves the same. So now you have the comparison. So you, you could say probably these specialized sort of labs operate in different paradigms, different cell types, and you have made the connection. So this is something that I'm extremely excited about. The other thing is that I'm excited about on the research side is now being, if you've got consistency of product, you can start introducing genetic uh, variation. So, I mean, um, if you think about it, there's populations of human beings that sort of differ in their biology. And if you could take that diversity back into your research setting, you could think about designing clinical trials in a dish. You know, you could find out which patient population might be better suited to uh, a drug uh, than others because, you know, it works better or uh, because the toxicity levels are different. So that's really exciting. But then, of course, the other really exciting thing is, you know, broadening the use of cell therapy to other indications. At this point in time, we have CAR T cell therapies. I always call them, this is the brother white flight in cell therapy, you know, very primitive editing uh, of T cells that had transformational effects. I mean, curative, essentially. You give uh, a single therapy and some blood cancers can be cured at a stage where the patient, you know, is doomed because everything else has failed. Now, if we were able to generate cells at scale with consistency, and not only T cells, but other cell types, you can open the door to regenerative medicine. And I think that's really now in front of us, that opportunity. And we are very excited about our internal programs, which we haven't announced yet. But also, we are, you know, we're excited about uh, partnership opportunities that we're seeing. And once you've got a range of cell types, it's like Lego stones. You can then combine them and create maybe little organoids with hormone activity that uh, that you can use to uh, for transplantation. Maybe then we can scale out to printing organs in 3D. So adding complexity, and that means that maybe we can set up some sort of repair kit that helps us deal with degenerative conditions, trauma, etc. So I think the future of medicine is extremely bright. As you were talking about that, there were two questions that, that arose from what you were saying. The first one relates to 
regulation because mm -hmm. some countries and some regions are, are a little bit more conservative than others. How do you think that we overcome those differences and challenges of making sure that the US is on the same page as Europe and the UK, etc.? Well, first of all, I don't think everyone needs to be on the same page. Uh, I mean, this, you know, there, there needs to be competition. Uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, we will see what the right kind of regulation is. If you think about data regulation, US very little, Europe has a lot. I think some of the regulation has been criticized as being extremely heavy handed. But now we see the US adopting some of the regulation themselves. You know, it's good if there are different concepts and they're, uh, they're being tried out and tested. But we also need to be in a position where when we see that certain boundaries that we have drawn are maybe limiting, limiting our progress. And I think that might be happening right now in certain European countries, you know, where AI tools are being banned. I think that is uh, something to be, you know, wary about as well. But you, you should not lock yourself out of progress. So it's a fine balance. And because we don't know, what the right balance is, you're going to see different approaches and uh, and those different approaches will only over time then demonstrate uh, what the right approach is. So I think it's healthy to see a spread. I do think if, again, the scientists would be better at communicating, the regulators would be better at understanding and maybe, you know, certain decisions that may turn out to be too extreme uh, in the future could be avoided and the whole process streamlined. Following on from that, is there a danger of creating sort of a two-tier system where countries that are doing lots of research like the UK, EU, US, Japan end up with the ability to help their own citizens, but then people in Africa, parts of Asia, they don't have access to some of this? I mean, let's be honest, this is already the case. If you look at resources and, you know, how opportunities are distributed uh, across the world, we're not in a very good place. I mean, we've made tremendous catch-up, especially when it comes to the very poor countries of the last 30, 40 years. But, you know, there's no doubt this incredible spread. Now, if I had a magic wand, I would say, uh, you know, that's all become highly sophisticated, well-educated, and rich and, uh, and full of opportunity. But unfortunately, that's not how the world works. And I think when it comes to AI, it'll be similar. Those that adopted earlier will probably have an advantage. Those that adopt certain, you know, new industries will have an advantage too. But the good thing is some of those technologies are distributed. So it really doesn't matter, you know, where you are. You could use something in the cloud, in any jurisdiction. And uh, and that, uh, I think, could actually help underprivileged areas to catch up. I think a lot of it is financial as well. And one of the good things you were mentioning is being able to produce things more at scale, which hopefully drives cost down. And, yes. and I think that we're, we're quite happy. I mean, and I say we as the, you know, the countries that help with malaria vaccines in Africa or whatever, that as soon as it becomes something that's expensive, then it doesn't filter through. So I think that what you were saying about 
cheaper approaches and and being able to produce things at scale perhaps ultimately that helps with that distribution of the ability to tackle some of these issues yeah absolutely i mean that's what we mean when we see democratized access to human cells we need to bring down for example the cost of cell therapies by two orders of magnitude uh, in order to make it a therapy that can be uh, used uh, across the globe at the moment we have what I would call experimental treatments. But for me, a medicine, you know, I'm a trained doctor, is something that anyone can benefit from. And that's where we need to take this. Seems like you're quite optimistic about what's happening, which is good. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's it's a, it's a point in time where we see tremendous progress. And of course, now we are in a sort of difficult macro context, but the fundamentals is that we've never been more innovative. We never had, you know, such tools. And we, you know, we just need to use what we have and create uh, new solutions for the problems that we're facing. Definitely a very enjoyable conversation there with Mark. Next week, the plan, which could easily change, is to feature lupus, because as I've mentioned before, May is the bumper month when it comes to awareness days, and I'd have to do five podcasts a day just to cover them all, and I'm sure that would go down well. Plus, I'd be shattered. We do have a list of awareness days on the website at labiotech.eu, as well as a list of upcoming events, so do check those out. And of course, if there are some we're missing, we're happy to add them, because obviously we don't catch them all, especially the events, and so just get in touch and we'll put your event in there. Just another reminder that this podcast was sponsored by Scientist.com. Are you ready to revolutionise your research? With over 4,000 global CROs and academic core facilities offering thousands of custom services and over 15 million off-the-shelf reagents and lab supplies, Scientist.com is your one-stop shop for external research. Visit info.scientist.com slash advantages to download your free copy of Scientist.com's guide to streamlining your sourcing processes and optimizing overall organizational efficiency. That's info.scientist.com slash advantages. So that's it for podcast 43. I just noticed an email come in from one of the hiking websites that I subscribe to, which every Friday tells me three fabulous places close to me to go hiking this weekend. Of course, they don't take into account the fact that some of them involve ferries, and they definitely don't take into account the weather, so all three are in a zone where there's a flood warning. Funny how none of the recommendations say to take a canoe along with you, and they don't even have a disclaimer on those recommendations to say check out the conditions before you set off. So needless to say, I won't be doing any of them. Maybe with the rain it's an opportunity to do something different, like go to see some sport or a museum. I could do other things at home, but the last thing that you want to do is spend three days inside the house when you work from home. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining us, and I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Take care and join us next week on Cinco de Mayo for another Beyond Biotech.